morning, church family. He is risen. Amen. Amen. He is risen indeed. You know, a number of years ago, uh, my family, we had taken a trip to the Royal Ontario Museum. Uh, we took this, uh, we uh, drove to Yorkdale, took the subway down, had a great time at the museum, subway back up, and driving home uh, from uh, Yorkdale, um, I don't, I don't know, maybe my head just wasn't in it, I don't know, maybe you're not going to want to be in the car with me after I tell this story, but uh, I missed the exit and got off at the next exit and then ended up getting into a, a little fender bender with the car in front of me and uh, it was like this big, you know, uh, GMC Denali, it was this huge SUV, he had a trailer hitch, he totally crumpled the front of my, there was not a scratch on his car, he was so mad at me, and I'm like, look, I've got like four kids in the back, and my wife, I'm just glad everyone's okay, and he had no damage, so we exchanged um, insurance uh, information, and uh, I thought I, can just, I could just drive home. And uh, it's, it seemed like, you know, the wheels are still turning and I can use the steering wheel. And so we started, and Lindsay's like, oh, maybe we should just call a tow truck, you know? And I'm like, oh, it's fine, it's fine. And, and so we're, we're driving up, now we're driving up here, Ontario, heading into, uh, heading into uh, Brampton. And you're like, how many exits did you miss? Yeah, okay, I was, yeah, I was, in South, I was in Mississauga. Now I'm trying to get back into Brampton. And as we're driving, the hood just came up, like right out of a movie. Like, I don't, like hopefully this has never, ever happened to you, but I'm in like, I'm on a six lane, a major artery through the city of Mississauga, and I'm driving in the right lane. I had my four ways on, thinking, oh, I can just make it home, and then all of a sudden, just utter blindness. And, and then, I, I, then I agreed with Lindsay, you know, maybe I should, maybe I should just pull over and look, and look for some, Look for some help. We're, we're hesitant to just pull over and to stop. We're hesitant to just pull over and to kind of assess things. We've, uh, in some ways, uh, for the last couple of years, we've been forced to uh, pull over. Um, uh, things ha- have not been going as planned. There have been things that have been put out uh, in, in front of us. And we live in such a distracted society and in such a secular society that is always looking for rational and scientific explanations for everything. We're so disconnected from the supernatural. Some of us are here today and you're listening to all of these people sing about uh, this Jewish carpenter who is somehow the king of the universe and, and is God in flesh and he came to the earth and suffered and died on a cross and then three days later he came right out of the grave and then ascended up into heaven and he's going to appear again riding on a horse in the clouds and and you're you just have no category for that and someone invited you here uh, today to say hey listen I, I want you to come come with me and we're gonna sing about the horse in the cloud guy that the carpenter king uh, who suffered and died and all of this is just a little bit a little bit weird I just want to encourage you to just pull over for a minute just pull over with me and let's Let's see if, if you need some help, because you might think you can make it home. You might have had some bumps along the way. It might not, your life might not have gone exactly how you hoped it would turn out, but, but you could be on the verge of something very, very serious, and it's, it's, time, it's time to pull over. 
And so what I want us to do is I want us to take a, a real step back, not even, not even to start. My starting point this morning is not the empty tomb. It's not the disciples. It's not the risen Lord Jesus. I, I want to go back 3,000 years, 1,000 years before Jesus ever walked the earth. And we're going to look at an ancient poem the book of Psalms, uh, spelt P-S-A-L-M-S, this is like the, the mixtape for the, for the Hebrew people. This was the, this was the hymn book. This was the Spotify playlist for the people of God, the songs that they love to sing about God. And in this psalm, Psalm 16, uh, I, if you haven't turned in your Bibles there, I invite you to, to turn there now. We're going to see the the difference that it makes when we, have, when we place our trust in God. The difference that it makes when we place our trust in God. Uh, Navin read the psalm for us already. You can notice that it, it, it comes to us in seven stanzas. And so I'm just going to break those seven stanzas or collect those seven stanzas into three major movements in the psalm. Someone who is placing their trust in the Lord. Someone who's decided to pull over and to call for help. That's what Psalm 16 is. It's, it's a cry for help. So here's, here's the first heading that I would place over the, the first collection of, of stanzas. It's this. It's the idea of being secure in God's protection. Secure in God's protection. We live in a world that's more affluent than any other society in history. Any other society really on planet Earth. There, there's more wealth. There's more leisure time. There, there's, there, there's more access to just about anything. We live in a world with such a stable and secure, although it's not perfect, we live, we live in a world with a, a wonderful healthcare system. And we, we, we live in, in a world where we have a, we have a, a rule of law and a, and a sense of order in our government. Again, our, our healthcare system's not perfect, our government aren't, isn't perfect. But we, we live in sort of unprecedented times in terms of the stability and security that we enjoy as a society, and yet, we are a generation that is more insecure than ever. We live, we live in a, a generation that we are plagued by anxiety and by fear. We, we, we worry about what other people think about us. We worry about failure. We worry we have all of these options in front of us and we get anxious about which one should I choose. I mean, you just even think back, like in the 90s when I watched TV, I just watched whatever was on TV. And now I got to scroll through all the things. What if I picked the wrong show? And, and just even a simple thing like entertainment can sometimes be overwhelming because of all of the all of the options. We live in such an insecure and anxious world, but as we read Psalm 16, we see that David, who wrote this, was secure in God's protection. The psalm begins by saying it was a mictum of David. A mictum, that, that's a Hebrew word that has been transliterated rather than translated because we actually don't know what the word mictum means. The Psalms often have these little Hebrew words attached to them. Now, mictum sounds a lot like the Akkadian word for covering. 
And in Psalm 56 through Psalm 60, it's kind of like the mictum section of the book of Psalms. And in all of those Psalms, actually in the summer, we're going to be looking at those Psalms together as a church family. All of those Psalms deal with times where David was on the run, when he was a fugitive, when King Saul, who was uh, his best friend's father, who also was his father-in-law, who also was his king and his boss, was insecure and was anxious and was paranoid and started chasing David and wanting to kill him. And David was undercover. He was living, he was, he was doing the mictum thing. He was hiding. And Psalm 56, 57, 58, 59, and 60 are all described moments in a David's life. And Psalm 16 is also called a mictum. So that's our best guess at what this is about. And the content of the psalm uh, gives us that same indication as well. It says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. David is pulling over and he needs some help. He's got the most powerful person in his world is out to get him, is trying to destroy him. David is living on the run. He's looking for God to be his refuge. He's looking to God to preserve him. And for some of us, a prayer like that, that's the only prayer we've ever prayed in our whole life. There's maybe been two or three times, like maybe a big exam we didn't study for, or a loved one was in the hospital, or, or some sort of a, a accident on the highway where we just say, God help me. We, we totally ignore him all of our lives, and then, and then some crisis comes and we decide to, to cry out to him. Now for David, this wasn't just a one-time thing. David had an ongoing, vibrant, dynamic relationship with the living God. He says, preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. There's three major titles that are given to God in the Old Testament, and all of them are mentioned in the first two verses here. You see in verse 1, O God, preserve me, O God. That's just a general term for a divine being. It means a mighty one. And this is the, the term that's used just to describe any sort of a deity, and it's also used to describe the one and only true God. And then in the verse 2, he says, I say to the Lord, that's Jehovah or Yahweh. That's God's personal covenant name that he revealed to Moses at the burning bush. And then he says, you are my Lord. That means master or king or ruler. So even though Saul was the king and the master who was chasing after David, David knew that there was a higher power, that there was a greater authority and therefore a greater accountability to this ultimate king, who is God, who is the Lord. And then he says, I have no good apart from you. I have no good apart from you. You see, David had a radically God-centered understanding of the universe. It's not that David thought everything else in the world except singing to God or reading the Bible, that everything else is bad and only singing and reading the Bible is good. No, David understood that God was at the center of it all. Just like the solar system, the weight of the sun and the, and, and the heat of the sun, everything revolves around the sun in the solar system. Our whole planet, our life on this earth, all revolves around the weight of the sun and the heat of the sun. David could say that, God, you, everything revolves around 
you. So every good thing that I have, none of it is apart from you. None of it can be disconnected from you. David could follow the thread of everything in his life and follow it back to God. You, you may not know it, but every good thing that you enjoy in your existence as a human being is only good because God has made it good. You often hear people, these angry atheists out there, I don't know why they're so angry. If there's no God, why are you so angry about him? But you hear these angry atheists and they always say, well, well why is the world so messed up and why is it so broken and why is, why is there so much evil and suffering in the world? And all of that's true and Christians need to be able to answer those kinds of questions because it is a broken world and there is suffering and there is evil. And we do follow a God who walked right into it. He, he became flesh and he was crucified on a cross. That's about as broken and about as evil and as much suffering as you could imagine. But the question the atheist needs to ask themselves is not so much why is this world so broken because at the same time there's a lot in this world that's beautiful and that's good. That we have no good. And, and also how do we decide what's evil and what's good apart from God? We have no good apart from him. The sound of your friend's laughter. Your favorite song and how it makes you feel. Mountains and rainbows, coffee, polar bears, strawberries, sex, the solar system, the smell of bacon. <laughs> these, are, these are good things. So yeah, for sure, a person who believes in God needs, needs to be able to explain why is there evil? And we can't explain that because of sin, because Adam and Eve, our ancestors, they messed it all up. We would have done the same thing. They had one rule to follow and they broke it. We have a reason for why there's evil in the world. But have you ever stopped to think, why, is there, why, why are there so many good things in the world? The, the good things that, that we enjoy on a weekend like this where we come together with, with family and, and friends. How do you explain the good? We have no good apart from, apart from God. Verse 3 says, As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, normally when we think about saints, we think about, you know, cathedrals and statues and old, uh, dead people. The, saint, the word saint there just means holy ones. It's simply describing everyone who has devoted their life to God. I mean, you're surrounded by saints right now. Uh, if, if you're here today and you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you yourself are a saint. That's... That's how, that, that's, that's how the Bible describes those who follow God. He says that they're the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Now, you may be here today and you were dragged by one of those saints. And that's the only reason why you're here. And you would have a hard time sort of coming to grips with what that verse says. The saints are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And you're like, well, the saints in my life are driving me crazy because I can't stop talking about Jesus. And even some of the saints are like, yeah, I know the saints are. I, I, they drive me crazy too. But it's the people 
that the psalmist here delights in because God creates this sort of new sense of family and this new sense of connection among the people of God. I mean, just look around this room. I mean, you don't even need to get to know anyone. You can just look at the different, uh, the different ethnic backgrounds within this church family to say we are a, we are a new family that God has, has built together. And there is a, there is a delight that we have uh, in one another despite whatever differences we might share. The saints are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. And then he says in verse 4, The sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take my name on their lips. David says, I'm going to use, I'm writing this poem about God and I'm only going to sing the praises of the one and true God. And he says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. You might be here today and think, well, I'm not a religious person and I don't follow the Christian God and I don't follow the Muslim God and I don't follow all the Hindu gods and I, I don't follow Sikhism. I'm not, a, I'm not a religious person. I don't worship anyone or anything. Well, again, just, just pull over with me for a second. In the, in the Old Testament, you know, they had all these statue gods, right? You had the fertility god, and you had the war god, and you had gods of commerce, and gods of water, and gods of the sun, and, and people would bow down to all of these statues. And sometimes we think that, that people back then were just somehow less intelligent or or, you know, so bought into this sort of uh, mystical uh, religious experience. And, and they thought, well, if I just bow down to the, I need to bow down to the statue. But you got to understand, even back then, the statues were just a means to an end. Why would you worship the war god? Because he had a big battle coming up with the clan uh, uh, Geographic, next door geographically and you wanted to make sure that you won and you really, it's not that you want to please the war god, it's that you want to win the battle. Why would you worship the water god? Well, you have a big sea voyage going and you want to, you want to get there safe so that the, worshiping the sea god is just a means to an end. Why would you worship the fertility god? Well, you know what? You want your crops to grow. You also want to enjoy the pleasures that, 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 that go along with procreation. And so the statues were always just a means to an end. And so in our society, in our so-called secular modern society, we've, we've eliminated the statues from the equation, but we're still looking for the same results. We're still going after all of the same thing. So here it says, the sorrows of those who run after another God shall multiply. You might be like, well, I don't run after another God. But I'd ask you, what are you running after? Are you, are you running after things like, like possessions? I just got to work a little harder, save a little more, put a little more on my credit card so that I can get that flat screen TV or that new car. Good luck buying a new car these days. And, and if I could only buy this or buy that or, the, or th these sneakers or that shirt or whatever it is, am I going after possessions? Is that what I'm running after? Am I running after power? I just, I want that promotion. I, I want to get into that inner circle, that clique in my high school. I want people to accept me. I, I, I want to move up the social ladder. Speaking of power, I want to impress people. I want, my, I want to please my parents so they can stop putting, smothering me with all of this pressure. I want to please my friends. I want to fit in with the broader um, uh, society. 
I want my kids to love and appreciate me. I want kids in the first place. I want a marriage partner in the first place. What are you running after? Are you just running after pleasure? I just want to feel good. Some of us, we go through the whole line. We, we, get our, we get access to possessions and to power and to people. And then we just destroy our lives with substance abuse or, or other addictions because we're just, we just want to feel good. We thought possessions would make us feel good or power or other people. And it just leads nowhere. Again, this is why we not only live in an anxious age, in an insecure age, but we live in an age rampant with discontentment and dissatisfaction and disappointment and disillusionment and dysfunction, and discouragement and even despair. And so, rather than dealing with the despair, we choose distraction. Rather than sitting quietly to ourselves, we pull our little contraption out of our phone and we get distracted by, you know, trying to put some words and some squares on, a, or trying to look at some pictures that our, our friends have, have posted, or trying to figure out what's going on in the news, or trying to signal to the world that we're virtuous for this reason or to that, for that reason. We get, we're just distracted. Rather, rather than just putting our head on the pillow, right? We gotta put our earphones in and listen to something. Why? Because we don't wanna listen to ourselves. We don't want to hear the sense of, of emptiness. We, we don't want to be alone in the car in our own thoughts. No, we got to have the radio on. we got to have a podcast going, an audio book, or, or, or something. We're, we're just afraid of the silence. Because the truth is we've been going after other gods. And Psalm 16 verse 8 says, The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. And they compound on one another. David says, I'm not going to pour out their, their drink offerings. I'm not going to take their names on my lips. I'm going to use my mouth to give praise to the one and true God. So the psalm begins with a picture of someone who's secure. They're secure in God's protection. They're not looking elsewhere to these other gods, to these other things to try to create security for them. They're secure in God's protection. Here's the, the second movement of the psalm. Is, is sustained by God's provision. Sustained by God's provision. Verse five, verse 5. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. Notice how he, he, he describes three things that he begins with my, my portion, my cup, my lot. Portion, that's food, right? You portion out uh, food on the table. So portion is food, cup is drink. So he, has, he says, in the Lord, I have everything that I need in terms of eat, eating and Drinking, God is providing for me. And then he says, my lot. That's like the, your, your property, your property lines. So he has a shelter, he has a place to live, he has a lot, he has food and he has drink. And he says, as, as I have all of those things, I have everything that I need. I'm trusting in God's provision. We live in a world that's always wanting more. Okay, here's, here's my portion, but can I just have a, can I just have a, 
Can I have another serving? Here's my cup. Can I, can I supersize that? Can, here's, my, here's my lot, but I'm just wondering if I can expand my territory a little bit more. We're just, we're just never really satisfied. And like if, if you're looking for like the deal-breaking explanation for how this is true, I submit to you Cadbury mini eggs. How many do you need, right? You got a big, you know, family, family snack size bag. You know, it's like the size, it's like lawn fertilizer size, right? And you're just thinking, I mean, it's, I, all I need is like four. It's not too little. Like one would be ridiculous, right? So you start with four and then all of a sudden you start working your way down through the bag. It just never seems to be enough and the first four like that was all it was going to be right and then you're like okay just one more okay just another handful okay another 10 another and we are just rarely content in our world rarely satisfied with what we have what the psalmist here says the lord's my chosen portion and my cup and he holds my lot where i live what i eat what i drink god has given it to me and because i have god i'm not looking for more and i love what he says in verse 6 he says the lions have fallen for me in pleasant places indeed i have a beautiful inheritance now, if you know anything about the sort of biographical background of David, David did not have a beautiful inheritance. If this is truly a mictum while he's running from Saul, David's not king yet. So he's not describing, you know, his palace and all his servants and all of that sort of thing. David was the youngest of eight brothers. And they practiced something called primogeniture in, in that day. So think Downton Abbey, right? All of the inheritance goes to the firstborn. David was the eighthborn. There was a big event where the prophet Samuel came to his dad's house and all seven brothers were invited. David wasn't even invited. David did not have a lovely inheritance. And now David is literally living in a cave. I know men dream about, I need to expand my, I need a man cave. I got to expand my, 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 my lot here, right? David was literally a man in a cave. Like it was a man cave in the worst possible way. And yet he looks around because he knows that he has God. And even though for whatever reason his father didn't invite him to the big gathering, even though, even though his, his brothers would often accuse him of, of being immature of, or being selfish or whatever it is, David sort of had a, a, what seems like, from what we can piece together, kind of a difficult upbringing. And he had no physical inheritance as the eighth born. Yet he says, I have a beautiful inheritance. Because he knew that he could, he could relate to God as a father. I don't think he had a, a wicked or evil father like some of us had. I think he just had a, an imperfect father like all of us do. But he knew that there was an inheritance, that he was part of a bigger family. And that, there was, that he was a part of something. So whatever your upbringing was like, if you had a great upbringing, if you had a really difficult upbringing, if, you're, if you look forward to a, a big inheritance or... Or not. We, we have this inheritance because we've been brought into the family of God. 
Verse 7, he says, I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also, my heart instructs me. God's word was a sense of counsel uh, to David. David would meditate on the word of God and the wisdom that comes from it, this ancient wisdom. We're looking at a document that's 3,000 that's 3, years old, and David could go back to, to writings that were centuries old, that were filled with wisdom that would instruct him on how he could live. God gave him counsel. He also had a mentor in his life named Samuel who often gave him counsel and gave him advice and poured into him. That's one of the beauties of being the body of Christ is older and younger saints from different backgrounds being able to share wisdom with one another. He says, in the night also my heart instructs me. Literally in Hebrew, it's my kidneys you did your feeling, you did your thinking, really, in Hebrew culture, not, not sort of in your mind or in your heart, but in your gut. You know how you sometimes feel things in the gut? David says, my, my, my gut teaches me at night. Now, when my gut teaches me at night, it's normally like you probably shouldn't have had that second burrito. But <laughs> David was internalizing the word of God. And I love what he says in verse 8. He says, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. He says, I've set the Lord always before me. He wants God to be his focus. What are you, what are you focused on? What are you setting before you always? What's at the front of your mind? What's the first thing you think about when you wake up? What's, what's the thing that's on your mind when your head hits the pillow? What are you setting before you? Are you setting before you the opinions of others? What your boss thinks of you or what your friends think of you or what your family thinks of you and no matter how hard you try to appease them or to impress them or have them notice you, or is that what's setting before you? Are you setting before you the standards of society and you're having to, again, just signal to the world that you're, you're, you're mowing what they're growing, that you're... you're going down the stream of our broader culture? Or are you setting before you just the pursuit of pleasure, the next opportunity that I can, that I can give in to my carnal desires so that I, I just want to feel good? You see, here's the thing. With opinions of others, they're always changing. And, and the standards of society, I mean, if it's any clearer if it could be any more clear than it is in our world today, that the standards are always changing. What's laughed at one, uh, one day is celebrated the next, and who knows what it's going to be uh, after that. Are we trying to live by the standards of our society, or are we just trying to live by the pursuit of pleasure? But it's never enough, and it's always changing. But David says, no, I set the Lord always before me. D David says, uh, he's at my right hand. So he's in front of me, and then I know that he's beside me. He's with me. He's my, my advocate when I'm accused. He's my defender when I'm uh, attacked. He, he's my companion along the journey as I'm trying just to find my way home. And he says, I will not be shaken. Because God never changes, and he's reliable. He's a rock. So David says, I'm going to set him always before me. 
But we need to be intentional about that because we often have theological amnesia. We remember that God is with us. And then we all of a sudden think that we're all on our own or we get our eyes on the opinions of others or the standards of society or the pursuit of our own pleasure. And we need to remind ourselves time and time again, there's something to have your phone tell you. Set a couple of reminders in your phone just to remind you of, of Psalm 16 verse 8, to set the Lord before you. Not of your next meeting that's coming up or changing the furnace filter or, or picking up your kid from school, as important of all of those things are, especially the last one. But how about a couple of reminders just to re- remind yourself, set God before you. Focus on him. Remember that he's at your right hand so that you will not be shaken. I love that idea of God being at our right hand, that he's right there with us. That leads us to our third point. He's at our right hand. He's, he's present with us. Here's the third and, and, and final section of this psalm that David is satisfied in God's presence. He's satisfied in God's presence. Verse 9 says, therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. There's joy, there's gladness. I was so thankful for the musicians and the singers this morning. They were, they were physically uh, uh, demonstrating for us what joy and what gladness looks like in the Lord. It's different for people and different personalities or different cultures. But there is a sense of joy that comes from the presence of the Lord. He says, my whole flesh will dwell secure. Look at verse 10. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. Now this is a really interesting part of this psalm. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol. Sheol means grave. It means even more than grave. It actually means the... the, uh, The vague, nebulous, dark place where people go when they die. And then it says, or let your Holy One see corruption. Now that's a little bit odd. Like, you won't, like, David's saying, God, you're going to deliver me out of the grave. And then he starts talking about the decomposition of a human corpse. And he says, well, that's not going to happen to me. It's a little bit, I mean, I I know there's poetic license, but that's a little bit odd. It's a little bit dark. I, I'm, I'm going to escape the grave. I, I, I'm not going to start to decompose. I, I'm not going to go to the pit. I'm not going to see corruption. It's a, it's a puzzling verse. It's also puzzling for this reason because all throughout the psalm, he's been talking about my, my, my. Let's look at the next slide here. My inheritance, my cup, my lot, before me, my right hand, my heart, my flesh. And then it, the tables turn in verse 10, and it says, your holy one. Now, he mentioned holy ones before, the saints that he delights in, but now it's singular. And he's not saying, you won't let me see corruption. He, he says, your, your holy one. You see, there was a sense in which David, time and time again, escaped the grave. I mean, as a little boy, he fought this big giant named Goliath. It seemed like, you know, they might as well start digging for David's grave and and start making the sandwiches for his funeral. And yet he survived. And now he's living in a cave and the most powerful man is chasing him with a huge army and 
if you read the story of David's life, he was always escaping the grave. And there was a sense in which David was a holy one. He was a saint. But if you keep reading the story of David, he also committed some pretty major sins. So I don't think he would necessarily be able to set himself apart as the holy one. So I told you I wanted to sort of begin. I wanted to pull over. I wanted to you know, go way, way back, 3,000 years back. Now I want to fast forward 1,000 years. And it's the, it's the days following the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And he's appeared to his disciples a number of times. So he suffered and died on the cross. He paid the penalty that all of us deserve for our sin. And he was buried in a grave for three days. And then he rose again. And then one of the times where he was talking with his disciples afterwards, in Luke chapter 24, this is what Jesus says to them. As, as they're trying to come to grips with like, how could this really be you? How can you really be resurrected? You're not just a ghost. You're eating and, and drinking. You're, you're actually back from the dead. And it says, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me, notice this, in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. Psalms like Psalm 16 must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. So Jesus said that the Psalms predicted that Jesus would die. Now, if you go back to, uh, to Psalm 16, remember, David did escape the grave, but Jesus, like, actually went in the grave. And David, in some, in some way, he was a holy one. But Jesus is the true holy one, isn't he? And so Peter, who heard Jesus say all this stuff in Luke chapter 24... When we come to Acts chapter 2 on the very first day of church, the first sermon ever preached about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Peter chose as his sermon text, Psalm 16. Psalm 16 about this holy one who did not see corruption. This, this holy one who escaped the grave and then Peter lays it out real, real clearly. He says, brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, the guy who wrote Psalm 16, that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades or Sheol, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Now, some of you are, you are probably wondering right from the start, like, Ted, I'm sure you know the Bible, and I'm sure you know it's Easter, and so why on earth are you, was your Easter sermon on Psalm 6? Well, this is why. Because the first Easter sermon ever on the day of Pentecost, the first time that the Bible was ever opened and the apostles ever taught about the resurrection of Jesus Christ, they taught on Psalm 16. 
And so as we go back to Psalm 16, this holy one who escaped Sheol, who escaped the brave, the, the grave, who didn't see corruption, that is Jesus. Verse 10 was never fully true for David, but it was fully true for Jesus. But stick with me. Because it's fully true for Jesus, it's also fully true for David. And it's also fully true for you and me. Because Jesus conquered death. And the wages of sin is death. David died and stayed in the grave because David was a sinner. And Bathsheba was just the start. And everyone who sins deserves to die because sin is trying to find power, possessions, people, and pleasure, trying to find our satisfaction and our security from something other than God. That's the essence of sin. David did that. You and I do that. So what all of us deserve is death. But Jesus suffered and died. But because Jesus was the true holy one, death couldn't hold him. He couldn't stay dead. And so he rose from the grave. He did not see corruption. And loved ones, I'm, I'm telling you here today that because of verse 10, because Jesus conquered the grave, that means that he took the, penish, the penalty and the punishment that you and I deserve for our sin. Because verse 10 is true, verse 11 can be true for you today. You make known to me the path of life. Sin and the way of this world and pursuing power and possessions and pleasure and people. Well, that's the path of death. But Jesus has come to show us a new path. A path of life. How life is truly meant to be lived. Not for ourselves. Not to impress other people. But a life that is lived setting the Lord always before me. The path of life. And then in your presence is fullness of joy. If you live a life pursuing pleasure, pursuing people, pursuing power, pursuing possessions, you're not going to have joy. You're not going to have fullness. You're going to have emptiness and despair. But in your presence is fullness of joy. And then at your right hand, remember, he's at our right hand, and then we are going to be at his right hand. At your right hand, our pleasures forevermore. You see, the, the, the Christian life and the message of the Bible and the message of Easter is not just about your life here and now. It makes all the difference here and now. It fills you with joy in his presence and there's gladness and your, 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 your whole being it dwells secure. But there is a life beyond this life. There is a death beyond this death. And there is a life beyond this life. And only those who trust in the one who conquered death can experience that life, that life that goes on forever with pleasures forevermore. And so you can make that choice today. You can choose to get off of the path of death, get off of trying to find all of the satisfaction and all of these other things, and to get on the path of life. It begins by repenting of your sin, C.S. Lewis so clearly shows the contrast between what this world has to offer and what God offers us. 
He says, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition while infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Psalm 1611 says that there is fullness of joy in God's presence, that there is pleasure forevermore. This is what Jesus offers us today. This is what the resurrection means for us today in this life and in the next. Let's bow our heads and pray together. Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for uh, your word. I thank you that although the Bible consists of 66 individual books, all with human authors, that there is one common author, the Holy Spirit, and one common theme, the salvation that is offered through your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, we're talking about a, a psalm that was written 3,000 years ago, uh, uh, events that happened uh, in Palestine, uh, 2,000 years ago, and yet, and yet, they are relevant for us today. And so, Lord, I pray that you would do a good work in us. If there is anyone here today that doesn't yet know you, I pray, Lord, that they would repent of their sins and that they would confess that they believe in Jesus Christ, that they believe that he came to suffer and die for our sins. And Lord, I pray for those of us who already are the saints, who already are the holy ones who dwell in the land, Lord, that you would fill us with fullness of joy. Lord, that we would experience your pleasure, that we would truly say we have no good apart from you because we believe in you. We believe in the resurrection. We believe Christ is risen from the dead. And so, Lord, we pray that you would meet with us, Lord. Fill this place with joy and with song as we declare that we believe in you. Lord, we love you and thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.